Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Teens and parents are navigating a very different landscape today compared to the 80s or 90s. Learn to recognize that your teen is struggling and how to find help. Mental health and adolescence, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information from doctors and health professionals from your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we're discussing the mental health crisis in our young people. Joining us in the studio here in Brookings are Dr. Nicole Christensen from Avera Medical Group, University Psychiatry Associates in Sioux Falls, and Kirsty Canold, CSWQMPH, from Avera Outpatient Services here in Brookings. Welcome, ladies. Hi. I really appreciate you being here with us tonight. Dr. Christensen, tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to psychiatry. So I'm a South Dakota native. I grew up in Brandon, and I went to the University of South Dakota for undergraduate medical school and residency. And if somebody would have asked me if I would have wanted to go into psychiatry, I would have been like, huh? But I had a good mentor, and I really enjoyed the aspect of taking care of basically the entire person um, with an emphasis on mental health. And I'm from a family of teachers, so I was drawn towards pediatrics. Fantastic. Kirsty, tell us a little bit about you and how you came to do what you do. So I'm an outpatient mental health therapist here in Brookings. Um, so I am a licensed clinical social worker. And so my background is a little different because I've worked in a variety of fields with adolescents, um, ranging from child protection to juvenile probation and now clinical work. Um, so now I get to work with the families directly and help build skills and understand how our mental health is so important. That's such a valuable thing. So we've got experts here tonight, ladies. Let's get some good questions from our audience. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about mental health and young people. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask, ASK, at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Dock gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. 
So ladies, I want to start by talking about a kind of traumatic event that happened today here in South Dakota and I think across a lot of other places. Um, there was a phone call announcing that there was an active shooter at the high school here in Brookings and I understand in Sioux Falls and Watertown and Mitchell and um, kind of around the area. So what effect is that kind of event have on our kids? Kirsty? what? Yeah, when we talk about something like an active shooter, um, we really need to think about how that affects our kids. Um, that's a scary thing. Um, when we look at the media and the different shootings we've had across the country, we see a lot of really sad and terrible traumas that are happening. And when we have an active shooter in our own school where we have to be prepared for what I have to do in those situations, it's gonna affect our mental health. And we have to be able to talk to our kids about that. You know, sitting down with them and asking them, what was that like? How are you feeling? How are you doing with that? It's really important. Nicole, what do you have to add? Well, just knowing how much trauma impacts so many of the kids that we take care of, just even kids in your own community, kids at your church, school, anytime we have a traumatic experience happen, even though we weren't necessarily hurt, we were at a potential, so there was a risk for it. That obviously sets our body into panic mode, which lots of hormones and chemicals go through our body, make us anxious, stressed, crabby. We might notice that we don't want to eat, we aren't sleeping well, and so it takes some time to recover from that. And it's not something that kids and adolescents or even adults, the teachers for that matter, can just go, oh, it, it wasn't anything and just move on. Because it impacts everyone. And it's happened so many times throughout the country that it's just that scary thing in the background that people forget. Some kids just emotionally aren't at a point where they can handle that, and it's very scary, even for adolescents. Even for adults? Yes. I mean, and I would think that knowing how realistic that possibility would be would be even more traumatizing than, you know, the duck and cover drills that we did when I was in high school to save us <laughs> from a nuclear attack, uh, which, you know, was a theoretic possibility, but not something any of us had heard about actually happening. So, Christy, when I go home tonight and talk to my high schooler who went through this, what can I do to help her process this? Yeah, I think when we talk to our teens, it's so important that we sit down with them and approach them in a non-judgmental way. Um, we sit down with them to talk to them to understand, um, not to problem solve, but just to sit with them in their feeling. So it might be something like, I wanted to kind of talk to you about what happened today. How are you doing with that? What was that like? What class were you in? Walk me through what that was like for you. And then just listening to what their feeling is and naming those feelings. Naming the feelings are very important. Allowing space for those feelings helps us to move, move forward with them and heal from them. Anything yes. to add there? Well, I would basically piggyback off of that. I mean, the thing is, is that I'd also say, I'm really sorry that you're having to go through this and, and have that empathy because, I mean, as an adult, when we have them at the clinic, because we have them, um, it's, it's intense and you never know if it's really real or not. And just everything comes to you at once. Right, and that's just it. They didn't know at the time it wasn't real. So their, their reactions, their emotional reactions, yes, it wasn't real, yes, I'm sure they're all thrilled that it wasn't real 
but that doesn't take away the trauma of having gone through that episode. So. Well, and then on top of it, you're going to have parents that have been traumatized by mm -hmm. this that are going to have their own anxiety and mental health issues for the evening. And so just everybody, if possible, in a household, if there's that ability where everybody's there, just to be able to kind of just debrief and talk about it because parents also go through a panic, but a different type of panic. And normalizing those feelings. Like it's normal for us to have different reactions. Maybe it was not so traumatic for dad as it was for mom. You know, what, what was that like for us in validating that? It's okay for me to feel scared. It was okay for me to feel upset or it was okay for me to feel okay when I found out it was okay and feeling relieved. Everybody has their own history. Let's talk just a little bit about parents and how in general, moving away from this, this recent event, how does a parent's mental health affect a child's mental health, Nicole? So parents are an active part of their child's life. And maybe it's not a parent, maybe it's a grandparent or an auntie or, or a foster parent that, that has uh, the ability to provide care for these kids. And if, if they're not able to be there present with their child or adolescent, then that child is not having those validations to understand like what their own feelings are like or what they're thinking about. And so then they kind of just, it's almost like a type of neglect where if they're not having their needs met, it's hard to take care of other people. And I always tell parents, I need you to be healthy to take care of your child so your child can be healthy. Yeah. I like to talk about we can't pour from an empty cup, right? That's so right. we need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of someone else. And when we think about parents and trauma and how that affects our kids, we think about attachment and, and that ability to be attached and to kind of lead by example. and. Um, you know, our kids, they, they watch us, we, they learn by modeling. And so when we're not able to use our skills that we need, how are we gonna expect our kids to know those skills or use those skills when they need them? And if we never learned those skills, Correct. how can we teach them to our children? Correct. So it really comes down to giving those skills, teaching those skills, giving those parents the chance to develop those skills in order for them to help their kids become yes. healthy adults. When, when I have, I, medication is just one of the tools in the toolbox, so I always tell my families that because there are other things that are very important to help us all be healthy, but skills is important. And if I have a parent or a, a caregiver that's really resistant, I will talk to them about, well, let's try to do this because then you can help your child with their skills. So if they're stuck, then you kind of know the way to navigate through this so they can learn and be successful. Which is what parents want for right. their kids. We yeah. want them to be successful and um, sometimes we need help learning the skills to teach them because kids need different skills and the, what skill works for one kid isn't necessarily going right. to work for another. The skill that worked for me may not work for my child so maybe I need to learn skills that would be more useful to them. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a bunch of questions to get started on here, and I think that's fantastic. So keep those <laughs> questions coming, people. Um, so it seems like one way students often find their people is through school activities, whether that be sports or band or orchestra. How does being part of a group activity like that support an adolescence development? Oh, this is one of my, like, points when I talk with families and kids. I always tell my families, even starting already like middle school, I want you to be involved in at least one legal legal activity 
a lot of things you can do that are not legal, but one legal activity, and it doesn't have to be necessarily those things. I have kids that are maybe involved in like, like a fan group after school or, or, or 4-H or FFA. I mean, we've got different things, but the importance with having a preteen, teen involved in activity is it helps us learn how to communicate. It helps us learn how to like problem solve, negotiate skills that are very important for adults that that's when we learn those things and we can model off of adults that are maybe teaching, coaching, facilitating. So what about that child that's really anxious and really shy and really introverted? What tips do you have for them, Kirsty, to help them take that step? Yeah, it can be scary. I think it goes back to let's validate that feeling of like stepping outside of our comfort zone. That is scary and it's a hard thing to do. So how can we, as adults, how can we help that person like validate, I'm anxious, I don't know if I wanna do this. Talking through like what interests you about these different things, what do you like to do? Um, how can we build on what you like so we can do things you enjoy? Because those social skills yeah. are so important, they really are. Um, and how can we build on what you enjoy so you're feeling comfortable with doing those things and that anxiety can kind okay. of help help us get through it. So it's obviously an easier task for some children than others and one group that often has a particular particularly difficult time with that is individuals with neuro, neurodiversity, autism. Any particular suggestions for kids that are as we say on the spectrum? So they quite often tend to have like a very narrow interest which is completely okay. But if you're fortunate to live in a school district where they have other activities like Lego Club, I mean, mm -hmm. that might seem childish to some, but for some high schoolers, that's totally their thing. Lego Club, Lego Robotics, just to see what their interests are. And, and part of it also with that is also being able to help your child kind of understand how to navigate some of that. That's very, at times, difficult for neuroatypical kids. But because they often have neuroatypical parents as well. Correct, yes. Yeah. And so part of it is learning how to navigate that and help with the skills. I, I have adolescents that get upset with me at times because I'm like, I really would like to have you go to speech class. I can talk perfectly fine, Dr. C. Right, but you don't necessarily pick up on jokes or you're not understanding like some of the little nuances and that, that makes you feel anxious and then we don't want to do things because we think, we know that we're not fitting in necessarily, and so then that way we can learn how to navigate those situations, because communication is so important. Throughout your whole life. Yeah. yeah. Autism in children can, at times, present challenges, but luckily there are facilities and services available that greatly enhance quality of life. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer visited LifeScape in Sioux Falls to learn more about their programs serving individuals with autism. Megan Jonke is the director of therapy at LifeScape, a facility to help autistic children. She says autism is a social and communication disorder that can show symptoms as young as two years old. Children that are presenting with concerns for autism uh, may have a delay or regression in language, um, difficulty engaging in um, reciprocal play, um, difficulty with social relationships, um, and they also may um, demonstrate uh, sensory sensitivities or aversions. 
LifeScape provides autism screenings for children, where parents answer questions ranging from previous services to their child's social life. So our screenings are one hour long. They're paired with two of our staff. One person is just engaging with the child and playing with them, getting them to interact with them, trying to get that shared enjoyment of that activity. Um, the other person is observing that play and also asking questions to that parent. Suzanne Kaiser is a play therapist at LifeScape and her job is to identify children's negative behaviors through playing and help manage and shape them into positive behaviors. I'm gonna show this child how to take deep breaths or how to calm themselves or how to use nice language or asking please and thank you through play and just role model all the behaviors that I want to see um, that will help them be more successful. A popular program at LifeScape is Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA, and the children are seen from 8 to 24 hours a week to teach them about managing behaviors, like how to handle losing. Their staff might be working with them and purposefully winning <laughs> against that child, and then they're taking data on that behavior afterwards. Did they elicit the behavior that we wanted? Um, and then they might get that reinforcement, and then it just grows to maybe having to do it multiple times before you get that reinforcer. Another popular program is the Early Start Denver model, a newer program that is a good option for children under four waiting to get into ABA. And it follows a curriculum of typically developing skills. What is a child at this age working on? Which might be play activities, self-care activities, learning to dress themselves, um, those kind of things. LifeScape, which is available for any child who needs help, focuses on shaping behaviors, not changing who the child is. We all have different um, gifts. We all have different challenges. And so, um, and that's fine. We're not, we don't want to change a person um, per se, but if their difficulty is impacting their everyday life at home, and that is a concern for their family, then we want to help them work through that. It's so great to know that those services are available to help people meet their challenges and the better skills we can give our young people, the better position they're gonna be into as adults to have a successful and fulfilling life. Um, you know, we had talked just a little bit before that Roland about parents and how sometimes those uh, neurodiverse kids have neurodiverse parents and we had a question from a caller in Sioux Falls that I think plays into it wanting to know if uh, schizophrenia, paranoia, uh, mental illness, mental health challenges in general are genetic or hereditary. Dr. Christensen. They are just like any other health issue so if you think about a family history of diabetes, a family history of cancer, high blood pressure, asthma those are all inherited just like we can inherit depression anxiety schizophrenia we can also have events though and stressors that are environmental substance use um, head trauma concussions uh, you COVID. Can have covid yes very much covid we're seeing a lot of that but then you can also have just your environment so food is that helpful not helpful 
things that we can't necessarily control because we know uh, through research that different things like that will turn on or off genes in our body. And, and we don't have a specific gene for any mental health issue. Not yet, at least, because there's a lot of different areas. But we know that they're inherited. Um, and one of my favorite questions to ask is, if I do have somebody coming in that's going to require medication, I will ask if other family members are on medication, because chances are, if it works for one, it will work for another one. And that also kind of just, I try to do that to help them understand, it's just like any other health issue, it's no different than what you'd go see you for, by chance, so. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, one of my partners likes to say genetics loads the gun and the environment yes. pulls the trigger. Yes. So there's a very strong genetic connection, but there's also a very strong environmental influence. So um, <clears throat> we have a question that I think is a little bit related also. Why is the use of drugs and alcohol particularly risky for adolescents? I'm going to throw that one okay. to you, too. We'll that's find right. some that's questions right. that'll be, yeah. So we know that our brain, our brain, you know, has that funky little shape. In the front part of our brain is prefrontal, and that is where we learn how to organize. That's where we learn how to uh, budget, just very basic skills that are very important. And we know that that area of the brain doesn't stop maturing until age 25. So anytime you introduce a chemical, whether it's something that's prescribed, or like say a treatment for cancer, or a substance, we can affect the neural pathways or the way the neurons talk to each other in that part of our brain, which then can lead to issues down the road. Um, so since the brain's still growing, those chemical insults can cause damage that we can't reverse at this point in time. We don't have that science yet, but we know that it can impact that. And then it can also impact, unfortunately, other areas of our brain for things like hallucinations, anxiety. Uh, COVID's been a really good example of how we know that it affects different areas of the brain. And, and so things like marijuana, for example, that, that tends to be the one I hear a lot about because mm -hmm. we know that it's it's around. It's much more powerful than what like parents or grandparents used back in the 60s and 70s. But we know that if you have that genetic gun, that the marijuana can basically fire it for you and turn on those genes for psychosis, paranoia. Um, and, and that can be hard because we can't reverse that either. So it's a good thing to avoid. Yes. <laughs> yes. Including things like Delta 9s. So, I mean, we don't have enough research really for CBD. I have parents ask about that on a regular basis, if that's something to use, and we just don't know enough yet. Better to avoid things if we don't know the answer. Right. Yes. Um, Christy, this is a great question for you because I know this is an area of kind of special skill on your part. A caller from Brookings wants to know, how do you handle and recognize situations with teens with trauma-based mental health concerns? Uh, how do you handle situations where the teen has trauma, um, but maybe they don't recall the trauma? Yeah. When we experience trauma, it's not necessarily something that we're going to be able to call to the front of our brain and talk about. Um, what we know is that trauma is actually stored in our body, so we store experiences in our body. So when she's talking a lot about that brain science of how 
these things can affect our brain, trauma does very similar things. So when we're going through these developmental periods where we're in a sensitive part of development in specific areas of our brain, when we have trauma, it affects that area of our brain because it's developing. So we talk about toxic stress and all these things that play into that. And so it's, it's very difficult sometimes to deal with trauma because it's so multi-layered. Um, but when we talk about how do we approach someone that's had this trauma and how do we help them, um, it, it's really great to come into therapy, honestly, so we can explore what that was like because that trauma continues to affect us because, like I said, it, it's stored in our body, our experiences, and it, it helps us to adapt. It helps us to seek out substances and look at that risky behavior because we're, we're seeking that feel good in that moment that we're not having. And even if, and sometimes I think traumas that they don't have an actual recollection of can have an even more powerful effect because that's all happening beneath that level of awareness. I know that's something, and my, my, she, she gave me the okay to share this, but my daughter was adopted at age two. So she had a major loss in her life, and that is something that has carried on for her through to the present day. And we know that for children, maybe an adolescent doesn't remember maybe some trauma that's happened, but we know that we have those senses in our body, smells, like we'll have certain smells that might, like I don't know why I feel uncomfortable. That might go back to it. The other thing is, is that depending on the age, we maybe have not learned our verbal skills, mm -hmm. so we're not able to verbalize that trauma. Um, and so, and that affects too. how we lay down those memories right. too. Yeah. So it is a very important thing, and that's where therapy is so important and so yeah. valuable. And and recognizing those traumas, we were talking a little bit before the show about the ACE scale and uh, the research around that. Christy, can you fill our viewers in a little bit on that? Yes. Yeah, so ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. We call them ACEs for short. Um, it was a large study that was completed. Um, they looked at adverse experiences in childhood of 17,000 people. So it was a very large study that was completed. And they looked at three different areas of childhood. So they looked at what's called kind of that household dysfunction, it's labeled, but we kind of like to talk about like household expectations that we place. Um, so that looks at if there was like a substance abusing parent, if there was someone that was incarcerated in your home, if there was um, violence that you witnessed, separation, those types of things. It looks at neglect, so that's physical or emotional neglect or abuse. So that's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional, um, all those abuses that we can have too. And so the study linked these experiences to health outcomes later in our life. And so we know that if you have a higher ACE score, so there are now 10 questions that are asked. So if you score a high score on that, so say you're seven out of 10, you're more likely or you're predisposed to have these negative health outcomes later in life. So whether that's behavioral issues, social issues, health issues, all of those things, and that goes back to that neuroscience, that development that we have during that time. Childhood influences yeah. us through our whole lives. Yes. So very important. Um, here we have a, a caller from Sioux Falls who wants to know, how should one respond when their middle school child joins an activity 
But then after a certain amount of time in the activity, they suddenly seem to dislike it and they want to quit. As a parent, <laughs> should you let them quit? Should you force them to stay in a little longer? How long? What's, how do you as a parent handle that? Oh. Well, so usually what I, I always felt bad for my kids because it was like, well, you have a psychiatrist for a mom that's going <laughs> to ask all these questions. But usually what I'll do is I'll try to explore, like, why are you not wanting to stay in this activity? What's, what's really going on? Do you not like it? It happens, right? But I like to tell, tell kids, my own child, you kind of agreed to do it. It's kind of like a job. Like, you can't just not show up for your job. So if they're counting on you, you need to carry it out through the year. If you decide next year, I am not going to be in band, we know next year, but this year you're going to follow through. Because part of that is also learning how to fulfill like things that you say you're going to do, because that's also important as an adult, because if you don't show up for work, we know what happens. Mm -hmm. and, and those are kind of things that we learn as a skill as we grow if we're able to do those things. But that, that comes up on a regular basis. Sometimes it is truly like, I just don't like this, or Middle school and high school, I'll have kids that will say that and it'd be like, are you having enough time to get your schoolwork done? Mm -hmm. Are you behind in a class? Are you not getting what you need in a different class? And if you weren't in like say band or a different thing that you could go and get help. And so just asking those questions to find out why. And the school part's really important because you also need to just know how your child's doing because that's very important. And that's it's showing attention and being interested and that helps your child with being able to share feelings and, and you being able to or give them empathy for it. And recognizing those school challenges, whether it's interpersonal challenges or academic challenges can, can play a really big role. For example, <laughs> dyslexia is a learning disability characterized by difficulties with reading, writing, and spelling. But what if there's a better way to teach children with dyslexia? Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a teacher who has been using alternative methods for teaching children with this learning difference. Kim Carson was a longtime teacher and is the owner of Smart Start Dyslexia Correction Center, a learning center she started in 2001. Carson says dyslexic kids are more right brain thinkers, meaning they learn more from pictures than words. Dyslexia is from a person that is a three-dimensional thinker. They depend on pictures. They are not necessarily good with symbols and sequencing. And um, they are very important to our society. Carson, whose son has dyslexia, couldn't understand why he was having a hard time in school. But she knew that early intervention would be the best course of action to help him. He was struggling, but if you would talk to him, or if you would talk to his teachers, they'd say, oh, he's one of the first ones to answer when we're doing a discussion. Um, he's got really good answers. Really struggled to learn to read and write. And I knew that I had to solve that problem. She researched different teaching approaches and strategies and came across a program that suited her son's learning style. And then one night, and this is when he was in third grade, he goes, Mom, I just thought this was weird stuff that you were doing with me. This makes sense. I can read the now. And it was because we worked with Clay and built it and built a, built a picture to go with that word. Carson became licensed in order to teach children with dyslexia and so she could mentor other teachers. 
At her learning center, she teaches the kids how to use their creativity to help with things like the alphabet. We build the alphabet, um, both the uppercase and the lowercase, and that's one of the reasons that reading is very difficult is because they are not symbol thinkers. They are three-dimensional thinkers. Symbols are two-dimensional. And so in working with those symbols and then you put them together to make words and then those words don't have pictures, that becomes very, very difficult. A lot of the time, Carson says those with dyslexia would take the longer route for solving problems, but they always got the right answer. They are not A to B thinkers. <laughs> they go in a figure eight motion for a lot of things. The cool part of that is they discover a lot of really neat things along the way, along that pathway. Her greatest joy of teaching children with dyslexia was seeing their creativity and how she would learn something new each time as well. You got an A for the day. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it was fascinating because they could sit across from me and um, figure out something that I could never figure out. And I was an honor student in high school and in college. Um, and I'm like, how did you think of that? She would also like to see more discussions centered around the strengths of dyslexia and how teachers can use methods that help children be successful. Because they are fabulous thinkers. We need to teach them that they are fabulous thinkers. They need to learn that daily. That's such an important topic. I mean, recognizing the things that add extra challenge to children's lives and being sensitive to that, to how can we help that child be successful, that individual be successful. Yes, so, very much so. Yeah, so wonderful program. Um, so I'm gonna get to some more questions here because we wanna make sure we use our time. And here's something that I really appreciate. It really touches me that you called in to say this. We have a caller um, who just makes an observation, an individual from Sturgis, who just wanted to mention how important it is to talk and be open about mental health problems. Uh, this individual is a veteran and he's experienced PTSD and he just wants to offer uh, support to the adolescents and any other individual who's um, listening and to have them understand the importance of being open about their mental health. I, t I tell kids all the time, I'm like, if you broke your leg, are you gonna drag your leg around and like limp the whole time? Or are you gonna tell somebody about it? Well, I'll probably tell somebody about it. This is no different, especially with suicide. Because um, I'll have kids that are like, oh, I don't want to answer that because you're going to stick me in the hospital, Dr. C. No, if I can keep you safe, I'm not going to mm -hmm. send you to the hospital. If you do something to hurt yourself, I'm kind of obligated to send. But it's no different than somebody with bad asthma or diabetes that have maybe some uncontrolled sugars. We're going to try to manage you on an outpatient basis. Just sticking you in the hospital isn't going to be the, the, the cure-all or fix. And so I try to emphasize that, you know, if you're gonna let somebody know you're having a horrible migraine, if you're really depressed, it's okay to let somebody know. Or like, I keep having like panic attacks. I don't know how to deal with this. Again, something, skills are awesome. And that's usually our first step, but, but it's okay to share those things. 
it's important to share those things because yeah. it's not going to go away. No. It's not going to get better without that. Right. So it's, it is really important. Well, and sometimes we have a physical health issue that's causing it too. And so we don't want to miss that. Well, and two, we, so one in five have a mental illness, right? But everybody has a brain and has to take care of their brain, right? We all have mental health. It's not an illness that you're dealing with. Like maybe you're just having a hard time right now and that's okay. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's get you through it. Or maybe you do have an illness and how can we help you with that? Everybody has to take care of themselves. We had a question that came in that I think really plays into that. How do I know if my teen is just not hungry or actually has an eating disorder? So how do we tell the difference between a bad day, a bad moment, and a disease? Well, so part of it is, is I mean, you can have eating disorders either direction. You can have underweight and you can have overweight where we're we're compensating with food by dealing with our feelings or anxiety or things like that. And I mean, we are in the Midwest after all, where you we just suck it up and you eat, right? You know, that bag of chips or that container of ice cream. It's not necessarily a healthy way. Everybody does have bad days though is the thing. But if you notice that it becomes a pattern, like if you're noticing, oh, I'm just not hungry or we're not eating favorite foods or we're over-exercising, or we're finding food stashes in rooms. I mean, those are things to, to bring up and go, hey, I've just noticed. I'm not criticizing you. I just want to make sure you're okay. Um, because we know that if people are losing too much weight and dealing with, with an eating disorder such as anorexia, we know that that can cause permanent damage to the brain, but also to your heart, your pancreas. And so there are a lot of long-term things involved with it. And can be deadly. It can yes. be deadly in the, in the short term too. Um, and I want to go back to something you said a little bit ago, which is, you know, you can have an eating disorder and be underweight or overweight, and you can have bulimia, for example, and be overweight. So just because someone is heavy or a normal body weight does not mean they don't have a serious eating disorder. It's really important to, to point yes. that out. Well, and the other thing that, that comes with that is I, we've, we, and you deal with this too, we'll have kids that will come in, or adolescents, I call everybody kids, so I always tell them that, but... Anyone younger anybody, than me is a kid. Well, I, my, I my, my new my partner own. is a kid. Yeah. Well, he there is, we go, yeah. right? So I tell, I tell the patients, I'm like, you know, here's the deal. We have a range, right? Okay, right now with your weight and height, I'm happy. What do you mean you're happy? It's okay if you're a little over or under. I get more concerned if you're way over. Although I'll tell you what, I have a really good friend who has an elevated BMI and she's in way better shape than I am, right? <laughs> so that doesn't mean anything when it comes to physical health. But if we notice that it just keeps happening, the emotional eating, we can notice, oh my gosh, all of a sudden like lots of weight put on or all of a sudden like your clothes aren't fitting. We can go either way. And so it's, it's just like any other health issue, just being open and honest and asking empathetic questions and just, you know, hey, I'm worried about you. That's a good, a good phrase. I'm worried yes. about you. Um, we have someone from Brookings who asks, what do you do when a teenager threatens or weaponizes acts such as suicide or self-harm in arguments or to use as a form of leverage? That's a, that's a, that's a yep. loaded question. <laughs> Very. Um, we always want to take suicide or self-harm seriously. Every single time we take it seriously because what we know is that anytime 
that someone is talking about these things, it could be real and it could happen. So we always want to take it seriously, but it can be understandably frustrating when we hear the same thing over and over or it's a, um, a tactic or you feel it's a tactic being used. That's, that can be very frustrating, but we do have to always take it seriously. And I think getting to the bottom of why are we using those things as a tactic, as it was worded, um, what's the root behind right. why are we saying these things? Yes, because that, that, that is a parent's concern, like, well, this is what they do all the time when they're angry. Okay, well, let's find out. Like, obviously, I can tell you're upset. What's going on? Sometimes, sometimes for our teens, they'll do that when they're wanting some kind of attention from the adults in their lives. And this is the only way we get it is through negative attention. And so that is where we hopefully can maybe get the teen into what's called dialectic behavioral therapy, which I'll let you talk more about. But we also, with, with teen DBT though, we usually require a parent or a guardian to come with, so they also learn the skills. Quite often that's pretty helpful just for the entire family because sometimes we're modeled that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. With my toddler well child checks, I'll tell parents, kids will do anything to get your attention. So you want to get them to be asking for your attention in positive ways. So recognize when they're doing what you want to see them doing and praise them for that. Right. Acknowledge that. Uh, don't make them get your attention with negative ways. And I'm certainly not saying that that's what this right, person no, is no, doing no. Um, because there are certainly um, personality disorders that really do feel very manipulative um, but it's also important to recognize that those people have very high rates of suicide yes and and it is very possible so you do need to take those threats those statements yeah. seriously and get into therapy do talk a little bit about dbt yeah so when we talk about dbt we're talking about kind of the behavior right like understanding our behavior and what our actions can cause, like what are these consequences? Like looking at the different things that are an outcome of my behavior. And two, what I wanted to talk about when I was listening to you is that behavior is a form of communication. Absolutely. So when, we, when we're talking about toddlers, for example, you know, adolescents, we can see very similar things, you know? So why are we saying these things? What is, what is that, what is the reason behind that? You know, a behavior is an, an attempt to communicate. Um, so understanding those things can be really important too. Right. Well, and that's one of the things when I have families with kids that are maybe autistic or struggle with, with verbal skills, I, quite often when kids have meltdowns, it's because they're not getting a point across. There's, there's some kind of barrier. And once they get that out, then you're like, oh, there's no behavior anymore. So it's the importance of just communicating. And sometimes we all communicate differently. So just kind of learning how your kid communicates, verbal, nonverbal, your spouse, <laughs> your coworker. I mean, I mean, it's pretty much for everybody. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And you've got to learn those skills somewhere. There's a lot of similarities between toddlers and teenagers in terms of how rapidly their brain is changing, their hormones. There's just the yes, the impulsivity. Impulsivity. And, yes, yes, exactly. Let's talk just a little bit about how to find help for your teenager or yourself. What what options, what do you recommend that people do when they're realizing, you know, I, I, I may be a stoic South Dakotan, pull myself up my, my bootstraps, but that's not working for me and I need, I need something else. Yeah. 
Christy. Yep, so we can talk to our primary care physician. They're great at referring to, you know, different resources that are available. Our school counselors are great. Um, asking your friend, your neighbor, I mean, just talking to somebody and looking at what are my options. Um, you know, for us, we work in the schools and the counselors are great at um, referring, you know, this is maybe beyond our scope of what we can do. Let's find some yeah. additional help. Um, just those professionals and using that resource network that we have. We have a lot of really great resources in the community, but unfortunately I think people just don't know about all the resources or where do I turn for help. Um, at our office, we have people that just walk in our door and they're like, I need help. I just need help today. Can you help me figure this out? And so, you know, we, we try to connect them with what they need if that's one of us, if that's, you know, maybe you need to go talk to your doctor, or maybe we need to refer to psychiatry. Yeah. Well, in, in July, we had a brand new service rollout nationwide, so it's 988. Um, and people quite often are like, well, do I just call that if it's an emergency? No, you can call that if you're trying to figure out where do I need to go for the next step? Or if you are in a crisis situation and you have no one to talk to, that's a nice thing. Before people with 911, that wasn't as, as accessible and you would get people that aren't trained, but 988 is, is staffed by trained professionals. And so even if you don't think it's something that's like a crisis, it's okay to still call or text. And, and I'm not quite sure if we're full text in the state yet. Some states are much are. Yeah. more ahead because a lot of people, a lot of younger teenagers, for example, feel much more comfortable texting. Yeah. And so I tell people there's no stupid question or dumb question. If you have a mental health concern, it's okay to contact 988. Yeah, and I also, um, as you're talking, I'm thinking about 211. It's a great resource we have in yeah. South Dakota. Um, you can go to the 211 website, and they have resources for absolutely every community in the state. So you can go to the mental health tab, and you can look up what are the available mental health resources in my community. So it's a great way to get started on finding those that help. And parenting skills. You know, we've talked a little bit about um, the importance of parents having those skills so that they can teach them to their children. Uh, so that's a great opportunity to find those parenting classes, understanding how the brain changes at different, different points. It's really an important thing. So fantastic. Any last thoughts? Don't ignore your mental health. Seconds. Perfect. And sleep is the best medication I can give anyone, so make sure you're sleeping. Yep. I would just say, you know, if you're struggling, it's okay to reach out. Um, we have this stigma around mental health, and as it's getting better, it's still there. And so just really trying to drive home that if you're struggling, it's okay to ask for help, and it takes a lot of courage, and it's brave. It's brave to ask brave. for help when you need it. Perfect. Thank you so much, ladies. The winner of our prize tonight is Marjorie from Sioux Falls. Thank you, Marjorie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this. In healthcare, misinformation can be as deadly as the most serious disease and spread just as quickly. For 21 seasons, the Prairie Doc organization has provided health information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Medical professionals from your own communities volunteer each week to answer your questions. There is no cost to call in or to watch our shows. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. 
It's tempting to blame the pandemic for the dizzying rates of mental health concerns among American teens. We're all familiar with the impact COVID is having on our lives and the disruption it continues to cause in the lives of young people. Kids witnessed vehement disagreements between neighbors, friends, and family over the decisions that had to be made in response to the pandemic and felt the stress at home as parents faced economic and work changes, all without many of their usual support systems. However, rates of mental illness among children and adolescents have been steadily rising throughout the last decade. In 2019, nearly 20% of deaths in the 10 to 24 age group were suicides and nearly 16% of high schoolers had made a suicide plan. Even back in 2019, more than one in three teens suffered persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. COVID may have thrown gasoline on this particular fire, but make no mistake, the fire was already burning. Some groups have been disproportionately affected by this crisis, as with so many others. Risk is increased by factors that include, but are not limited to, gender, race, socioeconomic status, gender identity, sexual orientation, social supports, and family history. I don't think that it has ever been easy to be a teenager. As the brain matures, it starts to wrestle with a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of the world and of the self. Today's teenagers face nearly inescapable social forces, from the carefully curated lives influencers display on social media, to anonymous bullying from strangers on the internet, to the always-on news cycle that shows them violence and disaster 24 hours a day. However, there's a lot more speculation on what is behind the rise in mental distress in our teens than there is actual science. Fortunately, there is some research to guide us moving forward. As always, prevention is key. We can bring wellness initiatives to young people so they can build skills to help them navigate difficult situations and manage challenging emotions. We can protect them from bullying and discrimination. Parents can attend to their own mental health and role model healthy self-care. We can fund our schools adequately to be the safety nets we expect them to be for our children and families. Those who are already facing moderate or severe mental health issues, whether children, teens, or adults, need treatment. Access to that treatment needs to improve, and we as a society need to reject the stigma around seeking those services. Mental health treatment is as essential as cancer treatment. There is no quick fix for this challenge, but our youth need us to rise to meet it.
Thank you to our guests, Dr. Nicole Christensen and Kirsty Canold, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about adolescent mental health and what we can do to help. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Aging is a fact of life, and it affects all families. When imagining our parents as seniors, we may not fully comprehend the extent to which their aging affects them or us. Elder Care for Families, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Having access to trusted public health information is essential for thriving communities across South Dakota. As Americans, we all value the ability to make appropriate decisions about our health care. To do so, we need access to quality information from reliable sources. The Prairie Docs and their guests have been providing such information based on science and built on trust for the past 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. As we move into our 21st season of Prairie Doc programming, board members, doctors, and volunteers continue to follow our mission to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. Your donation to support Prairie Doc programming makes an extraordinary difference in fulfilling this important mission. Your generosity helps strengthen the Healing Words Foundation and expand the reach of trusted healthcare providers to share important health information that empowers individuals and families to make the decisions that are right for them. Donations from individuals comprise 50% of the funds generated by the Foundation to support Prairie Dog programming, and gifts of any size serve to enhance its impact. Please consider a personal or corporate gift today just go to prairiedoc.org to donate. Should you prefer not to donate online, please reach out to us by email and Foundation staff will follow up with you about a pledge. Many thanks for supporting the mission of the Healing Words Foundation and Prairie Doc Programming in South Dakota and throughout our region. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.